we are sharing the same atmosphere as every other person, every other 8 billion person on this planet. We are, mm -hmm. we are sharing the same atmosphere. And what is happening in faraway parts of the world are affecting us. Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman and I produce this podcast. And we're coming to you today with episode 224, featuring a conversation with the brilliant Susan Bauer Wu. Susan is an author, a teacher. She's been the president of the Mind and Life Institute since 2015. And she's here today talking about her new book, A Future We Can Love, how we can reverse the climate crisis with the power of our hearts and minds. So this is a really fascinating conversation about climate crisis and really how to apply the tools, the wisdom of a Buddhist framework and practice as a way to engage with the climate crisis. If you don't know Susan and her work, she's an organizational leader, a clinical scientist, a mindfulness teacher. She actually got her start with a career in healthcare as a nurse and doing also incredible work at the Mind and Life Institute, which just celebrated its 35th anniversary last year. And the Mind and Life Institute has been bringing science and contemplative wisdom together and Susan has been at the helm of their work for some time now. So this is a really time-appropriate conversation. I know all of us have been seeing such a huge range of climate disasters around the world right now that are affecting people we know, people we don't know. And this whole conversation is really centered around how we can be more empowered to navigate the climate crisis. And the book itself was inspired by a conversation between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg, who met on Zoom kind of early in the pandemic to talk about climate change. And that's what spurred this book on. So we're just so excited to bring you this conversation today and shed some light on a topic that we don't often address here on the podcast. Before we get to the episode, we also have a big announcement that coming this October, October 10th to be exact, Sharon is releasing a brand new book. It is her second brand new book of the year, <laughs> which is really a product of her time in quarantine a few years ago. Finding Your Way, Meditations, thoughts and wisdom for living an authentic life. This is a book unlike any that she's ever released. It is a full color illustrated gift book. And in it are these short essays, you could call them, that are centered around quotations, many of which are Sharon's most popular quotes, like, we can always begin again as well as quotes from Sojourner Truth and many others. 
This book I think of as the perfect introduction to Sharon as a teacher. It's for folks who maybe don't meditate or not really into spiritual practice. And it's just in time for gift-giving season coming up with the holidays. So we're delighted to bring this book into the world. It feels like kind of a different access point than Sharon's other books. You can pick it up, open it to any page, and walk away with a little nugget when things are challenging or you need a little inspiration. So you can head over to our website at SharonSalzberg.com and find the pre-sale link there. Also, our publisher, Hache, is offering a 20% discount if you purchase the book directly through them. And last but not least, for anyone who pre-orders the book in the United States, there is a small poster that's inspired by the book that you can receive as a gift from us to you, just as a thank you for supporting the book and pre-ordering. Finding Your Way is coming your way October 10th. And so let's get to today's episode. Sharon Salzberg and Susan Bauer Wu. Welcome, Susan, to the podcast. We've been friends and colleagues for a long time now. It's wonderful to have you here and We're celebrating your new book, A Future We Can Love, How We Can Reverse the Climate Crisis with the Power of Our Hearts and Minds. Great title. Um, Before we dive further into the book, I'm wondering if you can share some of your story for our listeners, how you came to this path. You're the president of the Mind and Life Institute, and you're also a scholar, and you have a background in healthcare. Thanks, Sharon. It's really, really great to be here. Appreciate you having me on the show. Um, yeah, so um, I started my my career path in healthcare. I was a nurse and my early work was in oncology and psych and in hospice. And uh, through my work in cancer care, and again, we have to go back, this was in the early 80s, I had an opportunity to work with people over really long periods of time when they had their their cancer. I'm talking about like years from the time of diagnosis until long time survival or um, or until they died. So what I noticed as a 20 something year old um, caregiver was that it seemed to me that people who had very similar diagnoses and similar treatment plans and pathology actually seemed to fare differently. And as somebody who worked closely with them and got to know them, it seemed to me that there was really something going on in how they lived their lives and particularly the meaning and the relationships that they had in their lives. And so that sparked my interest to actually pursue graduate studies. And I was fortunate to begin in a new interdisciplinary field called psychoneuroimmunology that was just beginning uh, at that time in the uh, early 90s. And so I pursued my my PhD um, trying to better understand the science of the mind-body connection and the role that meaning-making 
may play in terms of our um, health functioning and our immune function. And it was during that time I also started meditating. So I've been meditating now about 30 years. And when I started meditating, and it was a Korean Zen um, practice, I realized how much the practices helped me and how I was shifting as a result of the practices. And that, um, fast forward, I did a postdoc in behavioral medicine, and my first faculty job was at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And John Kabat-Zinn was still there. And um, I basically merged my personal meditation practice with my um, scholarly work. And so I became an MBSR teacher and started doing research in that area. And so fast forward years later, I got involved with the Mind and Life Institute as a meditation um, researcher, as a clinical scientist. And, um, and here I am in 2023 as president of Mind and Life. Yeah, there's such a rich cross-section between healthcare workers and contemplative practice and area that I've been drawn to engage with over the years. And you're having been a caregiver so directly, I'm curious about how that informs your work today. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I, when I think about healthcare professionals and being a caregiver and um, being a good caregiver, the things that really rise to the top are authentic presence and compassion. And to me, those are just like critical life skills to have in all, you know, all dimensions of our work. So I bring that to my leadership role and leading a team and, and working with various uh, stakeholders. And it also just informs the work and the, the priorities that we've set in the work that we do with, with Mind and Life. And, you know, as it relates to, to climate change, and we'll probably talk more about that because that's just been an area that I've gotten more and more interested in uh, since writing the book, is um, that there are so many dimensions of um, related to healthcare, whether it's um, grief or connecting with nature, that really make, make a difference to um, how we navigate the times that we're in. So to me, there's there's lots of lots of lessons to bring from my work in caregiving to the to the work I do today. I do want to go more into climate change in a minute, and I have a feeling that what I'm about to say, which I just thought of, will connect. Um, in that, I think you've probably heard me tell the story because I've told it for so many years. It was so impactful on me um, about the time I went to lead a like a nurse's training seminar at mm -hmm. Walter Reed Army Hospital. And um, I had a friend who was a, a nurse at there at the time, and it was like National or International Nurses Week. And so they had all kinds of different programs. They had fly fishing on the lawn, on the dry lawn, and they had meditation with me. And so uh, she'd also arranged, my friend arranged for a very short tour of one of the wards for me. And Needless to say, it was like really wrenching. It was so intense between the uh, injured soldiers or their families and 
is very, very intense and hard. And um, we finished the tour, and she turned to me and she said, the nurses who can stay here, and that means continue to serve, the nurses who can stay here are not the ones who get lost in sorrow. The nurses who can stay here are the ones who can connect to the resilience of the human spirit. And that actually affected my view of compassion and the building blocks of compassion uh, quite strongly for a very long time. And certainly when one thinks of climate change, is almost nothing easier than despair. And so I'm um, wondering in a way how you came to engage with climate change and uh, really almost that kind of direct connection to resilience. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that that story. Um, it's a beautiful story, and it really resonates with me and and the experiences that I've had, just either myself or in my my ongoing work with nurses and doctors as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's keeping that flame alive in the human spirit and really maintaining that connection to to one another that you know keeps us going. And, you know, I, I think that my meditation practice has been really instrumental in, in connecting me to the work that is both um, resilience in healthcare, but resilience through climate work. And, you know, with a meditation practice, you know, it, it helps it helps us to see clearly just to, you know, wake up and to, to notice our deep interconnection with one another and with the natural world. And if we really look at nature, we see these countless examples of, of how to be resilient. Um, but as it relates to compassion and, and seeing clearly, I think we really need to be awake to the tremendous disparities that are before us as it relates to climate change, that individuals and communities and um, countries that are most under-resourced and most vulnerable are those that are affected the most. And you know, those of us that come from more privileged backgrounds really, really have an obligation to be awake and to live compassionately and to do everything we can to alleviate the suffering of those who are really most harmed by the climate devastation that we're experiencing and more to come. You know, it's amazing as a, an issue because it's really both. It's like, needing to open to the fact that, as you say, the most vulnerable will be affected the most, but also seeing the universality of it. Like I was in New York City not too long ago in my apartment, my rental apartment, and I was working at the computer and I just glanced over my shoulder out the window and the sky was like as yellow as a lemon. Mm -hmm. And that was the day that they declared New York the most polluted city in the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I can't go outside. You know, in many days in that visit and the next, people would come to see me and say, don't go outside, whatever you do, you're not going to be able to breathe. And you think, oh, yeah, look at this. It's come upon us. 
Yeah, Sharon, I'll just I'll just jump in here because I was in New York on that exact day. I know mm-hmm. the day you're talking about. And it was actually the official launch of this book, A Future We Can oh, Love. <laughs> it was so creepy. It was like, this is nuts. And for people who are listening that may not be aware of why the skies were so yellow and the air quality was so poor, it was because it was um, the air was moving from the forest fires in Canada down to the northeastern or the whole eastern seaboard of the United States. And the air quality was awful. I did go outside because I Mm -hmm. don't have a pulmonary, serious pulmonary condition. But I have to tell you, my throat, my chest, my eyes were burning. Mm -hmm. And it was like, how can we not realize Mm -hmm that we are sharing the same atmosphere as every other person, every other 8 billion person on this planet. We are, mm-hmm. sh- we are sharing the same atmosphere. And what is happening in faraway parts of the world are affecting us. And sometimes it's more obvious than others. And on that day in June 2023, we felt it. We mm-hmm. saw it. It's amazing that your book was coming out that day. <laughs> it was it Happy was, launch. <laughs> it was it was crazy. Yeah. Oh, in fact, yeah. I just share this this little fact related to that is that our the publishing team, which is Shambhala Publications, and they're based in Colorado, they yeah. couldn't make it to the opening event because the airports in New York were closed mm. because of the air quality. Because the planes could not. That's terrible. Could not see. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's also interesting because sometimes uh, people hear that meditation experience will lead to a deepening understanding of interconnection. And it's kind of like, oh, that's just sentimental. That's frou-frou. That's like new agey. But interconnection is not always really delightful either, you know. Interconnection it, just is. It's just the truth of things. And so. Fires in Canada, there you go, air in New York is affected. Or um, look at a country like Tibet and how much um, they're affected by things happening in China and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and then India. It's just like interconnection is. And so it's both beautiful and terrible at times. Um, And here we are. So it's grappling with the truth of life in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a related to that is, you know, is, you know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, you know, underscores that we are one of 8 billion people and that we share um, one home, our only home on (laughs) planet Earth together. And that the, the basic Buddhist teachings related to interdependence, interconnection, mean that each of us are part of the problem and we're also part of the solutions that there are you know infinite causes and conditions to each of our lives that make a difference that fit into the the larger whole and you know when i say that we are part of the problem that really my my invitation to to all of us is to really 
look at ourselves and our lives and to look in and to recognize that there are ways that we are living that may not be as, as wholesome um, and as helpful to all the other beings. And so we be, need to begin to be honest to, to look at that. And so part of seeing clearly is not just looking out, but it's also looking within. So let's talk about your book. What was the, the genesis of it? I know it was inspired by a specific conversation you heard between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and environmental activist Greta Thunberg. Uh, yeah, so it was, um, yeah, the, the real impetus for the book, it started with an event that the Mind and Life Institute hosted and it was on um, January 8th or January 9th, depending, January 9th, depending on where you were in the world. Um, it was um, uh, just a few days after the major violence in Washington, D.C. And still we had over one million people join us live to listen to the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg and climate scientists and watch the launch of um, films called climate feedback loops, climate emergency feedback loops films. So it was kind of amazing that a million people showed up to the event. It was like 11 o'clock here in the East Coast of the United States, early morning India, middle of the night in, in Sweden. And the interest from that gathering, um, basically there were just a, a, a lot of, there was a lot of buzz afterwards and the publishers came to us to think about writing, to write the book. And what we realized, um, and actually my uh, literary agent is Stephanie Tate, who I, I know that you know, Sharon. Mm -hmm. And Stephanie, in conversation together, she's like, you know, I think there's a much bigger story here than this event. And, you know, let's begin to think about that. And that was a really wonderful opportunity for us to step back and to reshape, reshape the book. So yes, it was inspired by this event um, with the Dalai Lama and Greta and the scientists, but it's really much more than that. Um, so that's how it, that's how it got started. <laughs> I keep imagining the age difference between those two people, Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg, uh, making for a very interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was Zoom, right? You know, okay. and Dalai Lama is not totally Zoom proficient, and um, you know, and and Greta is very uh, uh, focused and um, articulate in her her speech. But the two of them, even under those circumstances. Um, really, really connected. And in fact, earlier that year, um, in early 2020, uh, the Dalai Lama just reached out to, to Greta himself and sent oh, yeah. her a letter. I think we have a copy of the letter inside the, inside the book. But the Dalai Lama reached out to Greta and um, just to thank her for, for what she's doing and what she believes in and what she stands for. You know, the Dalai Lama has been, um, he's been an environmentalist for decades, decades. Um, and a, 
couple examples of, of how that's shown up is that when he got the Nobel Prize, he was the first person that the notation for the Nobel Prize was related to environmental activism right. efforts. Just quite extraordinary. And then after he received his um, Nobel Prize money, and he was doing a Kali Chakra teaching in India, he uh, distributed uh, seeds of fruit trees from all over the world and with instructions of how to plant them and try to make it you know, relevant to the geographic region where people were from mm. and, and encourage people to start to plant trees. And I've often wondered, you know, those trees now would be about 30 years old, and yeah. which is quite substantial. And I would have loved to have um, found some of the people who planted those trees and still have them um, that they can look at and experience. Um, but I haven't been able to reach anybody who planted those trees. So if you're listening and you have one of those trees that the Dalai Lama planted, let me know. Oh, yeah. Really? cool? Pretty cool. It's very cool. I will say also the Dalai Lama is the very first person I ever heard use the term income inequality. Mm. When he wrote a book, um, Ethics for a New Millennium, which was before the turn of the previous century. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he uh, talked about um, ethics, obviously, and secular ethics, not needing to be tied to a belief system or a dogma, but uh, he spoke about basically conservation and of resources, and he talked about um, maybe a million, uh, several millions enough, maybe you don't need a billion, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that people are going to suffer, there's going to be struggle, and uh, you know things like that, and so um, it was such it was such a different concept than a very sort of um, orthodox, limited depiction of ethical life, mm-hmm. which I was very accustomed to in, uh, all those years of you know getting teachings in Asia. And suddenly it was this expansive, interesting. Uh, it was always been interesting and challenging, but you know it was suddenly an expansive, creative use of those ideas and so applying the idea of ethics and you know thou shall not steal um and what does it mean to steal what does it mean to live in a way that's exploitative that is using resources in in a way that's unfair um that's going to hurt the planet takes it to a whole other dimension Mm -hmm. yeah he he's been such a such a leader for, for all of us, and so ahead of his times. Yeah. So I'm wondering if the writing of the book changed your own views on climate change. Uh, yeah, it definitely, definitely, definitely did. Um, I, I was transformed as a result of doing the research and writing it. And so if I had to, you know, kind of just pin down the two ways very simply, just um, one is the urgency. Yes, we could listen to the news and we feel the urgency, but the, the urgency to really uh, do show up in ways that are needed right now 
it is a climate emergency. Um, mm-hmm. And so that became really clear to me. And then the other is that um, I l- left or am left feeling hopeful in that there are amazing people all over the world that are deeply engaged in work that is um, compassionate, that's innovative, that is across the spectrum of new engineering to helping people um, navigate the psychological challenges that they're they're facing with with the grief. And so I feel really hopeful. And um, you know, there's a yes, there's grief and there's loss, but there's also a lot of possibility mm. uh, before us. And you know, Joanna Macy has said you know, basically, um, with, you know, uncertainty, there's possibility, right? Because uncertainty, we don't know. And then there's possibility that gives us hope. So, um, so I left, I, I finished the book with a sense of urgency, but also with a feeling of hope. Nice. Well, you, you include a fair amount of science in the book. And I'm wondering what you found that was the compelling research. Yeah, and actually, this this relates a bit to the the event that that sparked the book. So I want to say more about that. Um, there were so one of our board members, who I think you also know, Sharon. His name is um, Barry Hershey, mm-hmm. and he's a board member of Mind and Life, and he uh, is a filmmaker, and he was really taken quite a few years back or a few years back by this idea of climate feedback loops. He wasn't familiar with it and realized that a lot of other people weren't either. So um, he produced, he worked with a wonderful film team and they created these free films called Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. Um, They are are five short films that are freely available. If anybody searches it online, you'll be able to, to find them. And they're available in 30 languages, subtitled in 30 languages. And so the book, the first section of the book, talks about the science of climate feedback loops. And so I was not aware of the climate feedback loops. And that's part of what also gives me this sense of urgency is that, very simply put, the warming of the earth is contributing to continued warming and the real amplification and acceleration of the warming. So, so I'll get, I'll, I'll give a, a couple of examples. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there are several, there, there are actually um, several climate feedback loops. And there are four that we talk about in, in the book. Um, one relates to um, the um, permafrost, Another relates to the albedo, albedo um, feedback loop, which is basically the melting of the glaciers in the in the Arctic. Um, there's the disappearing forest feedback loop, and then there's the atmospheric um, feedback loop that relates to the jet stream and um, water vapor and clouds. So uh, we don't have time to get into all those, and but the book explains them, and also these films that I mentioned also provide an explanation of them. But, um, but it's really, really cool to understand 
understand them because you get to realize, wait a second, that anything we're doing that's um, increasing global warming through particularly fossil fuels or cutting down forests um, is a problem and it affects it affects all of us and these feedback loops um, accelerate the, the damage. So we know that the Arctic is warming at unprecedented um, fast rates. It's getting into the 90s in the summertime in the, in the Arctic. And so the sea ice is melting and also the permafrost, which is land that has been frozen for tens of thousands of years, probably hundreds of thousands. I don't know, but it's a really, really, really long time. It's been frozen and what's happening. And in that soil is, um, are, um, animals that, that have, um, that have died, but also a lot of plant matter. And what's happening is when it warms, there are these microbes that are um, accelerating the breakdown of the land. And when that happens, it releases methane and also carbon into the atmosphere. And then that release of methane and carbon then contributes to further warming. So that's, that's one example of the permafrost uh, feedback loop. And then the forest feedback loop, I'll just briefly say forests are so, trees are so important. They, you know, through the miracle of photosynthesis, they release oxygen, they store water in their uh, roots, in their trunks, and um, they're just natural cooling um, beings. They just continue to cool the, the planet and they give us oxygen so we can breathe. But what's happening is with the warming, um, the global warming that's happening is that trees are dying and they're getting diseases and they're burning, which is what we experienced in New York. And what, as a result of the fires from, um, from the forest fires in Canada. And so when all of these trees are, are either dying or they're burning, um, they are, instead of um, storing carbon, all of a sudden they are massively releasing carbon. And that massive release actually contributes to more warming. Amazing. Every moment counts, really. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Shout out to Barry, really. <laughs> the films are really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, everybody should know about climate feedback loops. It just changed. It really, once I learned about them, it really changed my perspective and mm -hmm. understanding the science. Uh, and it's, 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 it's pretty simple and yet really profound and speak to the Buddhist teachings on interconnection. Yeah. Well, I've seen that you're applying several different Buddhist teachings in the book to help people engage with climate change differently. Like we've talked a little bit about. Um, not in the Buddhist context necessarily at all, but seeing uh, progress being made on various engineering fronts and other fronts, psychological fronts, dealing with trauma. Um, and that helps with this feeling of despair that could so easily come when reflecting on climate change and also different practices in a way relating to change perhaps or um, other things. So I'm wondering how you might have found the teachings empower us to actually engage in a way 
uh, have some resilience and to relate differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could speak for, for myself and how they've helped me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that we, I, I'll just again speak for myself. Um, I'm living, we are living at a time that is really scary and it's overwhelming. And it, we can be frozen in fear and filled with anger. And it's, you know, climate is just one of many things that's contributing to this, right? You, you know, that, that well. And, um, but what the, what the teachings and what the practices have helped me to do is to not run away or hide from these difficult feelings, but to rather be with them and to learn to metabolize them in a way that um, they kind of move through me and then kind of inspire me to then show up in ways that are more present and how and looking at ways that I can I can be helpful. So um, metabolizing um, the difficult emotions is definitely um, a big part of the, the practice. And then the other part relates to, to compassion and compassion practices that um, I really try to, again, instead of just being overwhelmed by witnessing the suffering of people who are climate refugees and you know just just recently this year in the um september of 2023 what did we there are two back-to-back major natural there are many natural disasters but like in libya the flooding of the you know tens of thousands of people who have died in that and then the earthquake in, in morocco are just two two examples. I mean, there's there are many many others, and we could just be like like our hearts could be feel like someone's just like stepped on us, right? It's just like oh, it's too much to bear. And I think that the Buddhist the Buddhist compassion practices are really essential to helping us um, just hold. Um, the suffering and to move through and to cultivate compassion and, uh, you know, an open heart in, in such a way that, um, we can, um, rise up instead of feeling held back. Beautiful. I mean, compassion is not an easy thing to understand, even. Um, you know, sometimes people will put another term on it, like wise compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it's easy to think of, well, doom scrolling, for example, which is a word I didn't know what it meant until I was interviewed about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually asked the journalist, I said, what is that? Uh, and of course, I do it. So <laughs> I related right away. Um, mm-hmm. Reading the news and seeing the same tragic events again and again and again, but not able to like take a moment and not read it again and again and again and even see mm-hmm. how you're feeling about it because you have to read it again and again and again. So. Um, you know, and it's tragic. It's totally tragic and um what is happening and you write in the book about being a bodhisattva committed to serving the environment, which would mean being able to somehow 
find a kind of balance also, maybe some compassion for yourself and like take a little break, you know, mm-hmm. or remember mm-hmm. resilience and replenishing. It's like that nurse, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if you drown in sorrow, you're going to go back to bed. You just cannot function in a way that's helpful. That's just reality. And so uh, remembering that perhaps, or maybe it's really committing to the long haul. These things don't happen quickly. This change is not mm-hmm. going to be sudden. And so um, what do you mean about being a bodhisattva committed to serving the environment? Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to expand that now say to the environment and really all all the beings, uh, human and non-human beings. Um, it's, it, you know, we're, we're called to, to wake up and step up in ways that require all of us to do that in whatever ways we are able to do it. Um, we, we have to, you know, we have to look toward instead of looking away from what is happening because it needs us, it needs us to do that. And I think your your point about wise compassion is essential. It's like, yes, we are bodhisattvas. We have to um, look toward, lean in, extend our our arms to to helping others. And in order to do that, we have to have the the strength and the resilience to do that. And so we have to be wise in how we take care of ourselves and how we, you know, make time for rest um, and um, be in community with one another. That was, that was an, another thing that I learned in, in writing the book. And I've since learned because I'm, I'm actually been working, um, co-facilitating a group here this summer in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, we've been, um, I've just been feeling a need to get more connected to my local community. And what I, what I have been finding is that community matters a lot and that we can't do this alone. And part of wise com- compassion means, you know, creating and recognizing that we are part of community and we need community to do what's needed right now. You have such a, a beautiful vision of what's possible as we look to the future. And I'm wondering if you can share your vision with us. Yeah, I think it's my vision builds on um, what I was just saying is um, that more and more and more of us that are on this planet together and particularly those of us that are um, privileged and aren't directly facing trauma is that we really, uh, we wake we wake up and we're honest with ourselves of how we're living our lives and we look at what we can do to make a difference. And that, you know, we're mindful of uh, our travel, we're mindful of what we eat, what we buy, who we vote for, how we invest our money, and that by living more more mindfully and more compassionately and recognizing 
that we are part of this, you know, amazing whole, um, of, of planet earth, um, that we're in it together and that there's, there's possibilities that it's, you know, yes, there's going to be, there is suffering. There's going to be more suffering. And yet at the same time, there's still so much uncertainty and so much possibility. So I'd like to say, you know, my, with my vision is that we're, we're part of this interconnected web and it's a web with infinite ripples of, of possibilities. Well, before we close today, I would love for you to lead us in a practice of some kind to to bring our conversation to an end. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I just invite you to uh, just settle and feel the gravity earth, earth beneath you, feeling grounded with your feet on the floor, the earth, your sits bones. We've been talking about quite a lot of um, heavy kinds of stuff. So I invite you to take a few full cleansing breaths and really allowing yourself to release on the exhale. Breathing in fully the oxygen that comes from plants and trees. Breathing out and releasing carbon dioxide that then breathes life to the plants and trees. We have this beautiful interrelationship of interbreathing, interbeing with trees and plants. And being aware of the wholeness of how we, our bodies, are the elements. The air we breathe.
And our body and our cells need water. We're like 80% water. And water comes from the rains. Stored in lakes, roots of trees, rivers. It's bringing awareness to the water that makes up your body. So besides drinking water, we also eat, bringing awareness to how our bodies are nourished by the earth, through the different foods that we eat. Our bodies are earth bodies. And the element of fire not only helps us to cook our food, but also the natural element of sunshine helps us to grow the food we eat. And also sunshine is really vital to our own health and well-being. We're transforming vitamin D into essential nutrient in our bodies. Just overall how sunshine affects our mental health and our outlook on life. Just sitting with for a few moments is an awareness of the integrated whole of how you are and you need the natural elements. moment by moment and breath by breath. I'll close with an ikasattva vow that I learned from my 
friend and teacher, Lama Willa Blythe Baker. Gaia is in peril. I vow to protect her. Climate change is relentless. I vow to end it. Gaia's teachings are infinite. I vow to hear. Awakened love is inconceivable. I vow to embody it. Thank you. And thank you so much for the beautiful meditation. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Sharon. Really is an honor and a privilege to be here with you. May you be well. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to get yourself a copy of A Future We Can Love, you can visit mindandlife.org. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's work, her many offerings, or her forthcoming book, Finding Your Way, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy and may you live with ease.